Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Colonel Ward is Vice President of International Business Development at Lockheed Martin's Missiles and Fire Control. He's been with the company since 1997 after an illustrious uh, service of a long time. Uh, yeah, right. A long term, three, th- three decades with the United States Army where he served in a number of posts, including in the first Gulf War and lived in Germany for a number of years. He's a graduate of the U.S. Army College and the National Defense University and holds a bachelor's degree from that football powerhouse, Auburn University, and a master's of science, MSBA, whatever that stands for. What does that stand for? Master in Business Administration from Boston, from Boston University. And he's also, the most important part of his work is that he is a director of the World Affairs Council. Please welcome John Ward. some informed consideration of this, of this, uh, the current and future health, and talk about uh, the international implications of, of some of the things that, that we do. Uh, some assertions uh, uh, from our part. Um, I, I think uh, that uh, in order to remain a global superpower, you gotta, you got to be in all three areas of national security. One of them is defense. One of them is you got to be a political power, and you got to be an economic power. In the defense world, uh, I think it's important that we do maintain a strong defense industry, and it is a, should be a partnership with the U.S. government. Uh, since the end of the Cold War, we reaped the, the uh, peace dividend, and on through 9-11, we have continued to downsize the Department of Defense uh, and, and the uh, uh, industry that supports it. Uh, we've consolidated and downsized the industry, but in order to... Uh, make the best use and maintain our, our strong capabilities, we've got to do a little better job both on our side and on the government side to fully uh, capably uh, support our global enterprises. So I'm going to talk about really four subjects this morning. Uh, one, strategies, shifts, our budget, which might be surprising to some of you, and, and uh, the U.S. aerospace and defense industry. I'm going to talk a little bit about international, just because it's sort of this big cloudy area, and people often ask crazy questions, and I... I don't know where they, where they come from. Let's look what, that, what happened to our force structure since 1990. Uh, Army divisions down uh, 45%, 18 to 10. Aircraft carriers, 15 to 11. Submarines, surface ships, uh, all the way down. Naval aviation wings supporting those carriers. Uh, Air Force wings supporting the divisions. And of course, the Marine Corps has the best uh, congressional affairs office of any of the services, so they've actually grown a little bit over the, over the 
There's a there's a note there. Actually, if we uh, if we look uh, inside this this force structure and look at the equipment in there, it's even more disturbing. Uh, uh, B-52s. Uh, the average age of the B-52 fleet is 44 years, which I'm sure is older than the median age in this room. Uh, C-130s, uh, 35. And it just goes down the list. You probably recently heard of the F-15 grounding. One-third of the fleet of F-15s were grounded for wing fatigue. It's just primarily aging. Uh, U-2 reconnaissance aircraft uh, still need manned reconnaissance. They're uh, on the average 25 years old. Uh, and it just goes, goes down the list. The tank fleet, the M1 Abrams, uh, 21 years old. No new, no new Abrams have come off the line in probably uh, 15 years. These are all rebuilds. Uh, the Humvee fleet. That's just irrelevant. The Humvees, which are the vehicles that the military uses to drive around in theater, tactical theaters, it's just gone. Uh, they are, they've all been wiped out in, by overuse in Iraq and that. And of course, the backbone of the fleet are the trucks uh, and that. Uh, I heard an Air Force guy say the other, other night uh, that we have satellite systems that are old enough to vote. Uh, <laughs> And we're a high-tech company, constantly working with the leading edge of technology. And, uh, John? Yes? How, how long does it take to build a B-52? So if we wanted to replace one today, would that take a year? Would it take two years? Let, let me just put that in perspective, if I could, Dave. Uh, the Joint Strike Fighter, which is the, 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 latest, the latest jet to come, off, to come out of the, the mill, we started working uh, on the concept definition for that airplane in the mid-90s, and the first prototypes started flying about a year ago and will be in low-rate initial production uh, next year. So more than a decade. More than a decade. Uh, so, I mean, it doesn't take long to build them once you decide what it is you want to build, and, and you go through all the congressional wickets and stuff. But, but the... What's happened, though, since uh, Vietnam is we've had sort of a global strategy shift, and we redeployed a lot of our forces back into the U.S., and we have sort of an expeditionary military now. So it reflects this global, global shift, and you can see that we, at, uh, during the height of Vietnam, we had about 30% of our military overseas, and now we're down to about 20%. 20%. Uh, and, and, but remember, at the same time, We've decreased the forces that, that are out there, so we've got a much smaller force that's sort of an expeditionary force now. But guess what's continued to happen since the peace dividend? We have been deployed essentially for the whole uh, 15 years since, uh, since the wall came down. And here's a, a list of the who's and what's. Actually, that Iraq number, uh, that was a, a, the permanent deployment at the height of the Iraqi uh, uh, first Gulf War. There were some 500,000 military stationed over there. Uh, and we maintain about 150 in overseas in Iraq right now. Uh, it's really stressing if you haven't read that on, on our military, particularly the Army that, that bears the brunt of these kinds of deployments. Look at the defense budget that's uh, supporting all this, even though we're at war. Uh, these are, these are uh, 2007 constant dollars. Uh, you know, vast majority of our money is going for ops and maintenance. Uh, which is the day-to-day -day support and activities of, of the military. Uh, we spent a lot less on procurement in the 09 President's Budget submission than we did even in 1990 in constant dollars. And the RDT&E, which is the research and development line, which companies like us depend on, is, has grown a good bit. But uh, the dynamics of the industry are such that you invest, you the company invest in this RDT&E phase, and then you get your paybacks in the procurement phase. Uh, well, it's not working as well because there, there's a lot more investment, a lot less procurement. Um, here's some, uh, a chart that I, I find surprising. Uh, going back to world, uh, right after World War II, uh, this, is the, this is defense spending as a percentage of the gross domestic product. Uh, and interestingly, uh, we had a little spike back during Vietnam, as you can imagine. But interestingly, even in the height of this major conflict that we're in right now, it's still remaining at about 1.3%. It's been flat, essentially. Uh, even during the Reagan years, we jumped up a little bit. but It's been pretty flat. And uh, it's just a point that a lot of people miss. Um, I'm going to go back a chart. 
and show you the budget trends. You can see where the growth uh, in, our, in the U.S. budget really, really is. It's in entitlement programs. Now, these are admittedly not in constant dollars, but this is, this is in, in 1990. Entitlements were almost $600 billion. Um, Yes, ma'am. Okay, uh, the entitlement programs are Social Security, uh, Medicare, and Medicaid. Uh, oh, entitlements, uh, security, we think of defense, uh, homeland security, uh, the defense budget, other discretionary, interest on the debt, and other mandatory payments. So, but you can see that the defense budget, uh, although it's grown as a percentage of the, the, the uh, national budget, it's uh, actually gone down, uh, even though, again, we're in the middle of this global war on terror. Uh, defense program reductions. Everybody wants to talk about how, um, how expensive weapon systems get. Well, the reason they're expensive is when you start out to program to buy 165 fighters and you resource your or bombers and you resource your industry to build those bombers, but then you only buy 21, well, you've got to amortize that cost, that non-recurring cost against... 21 versus 170 uh, jets. So the same, the same thing holds true on the V-22 and the F-22, uh, our little love child there. Um, anyway, but, uh, so that's part of the, a major part that your defense costs are going up. You, you plan to buy a bunch, and you buy about a third. And, and uh, woods are full of stories like that uh, these days. The other thing is, is that programs languish, uh, and then they get, they get uh, in trouble. Uh, the one I started on, uh, Comanche, uh, we spent $9 billion and never fielded any. Uh, the Avenger, we spent uh, $3 billion, never fielded any. And then, of course, Crusader, uh, an uh, artillery system, spent $2 billion, never fielded any. So that money's gone. Uh, you might have re recouped some uh, research and development, but, you know, not there. And then I'm just going to show you that all of the aircraft, ship, missile procurement, helicopter procurement numbers uh, have gone down with the exception of the helicopter line, which has really found a niche in Afghanistan and Iraq. So they're replacing helicopters uh, that are getting worn out and destroyed. So as a result of this 1990 uh, peace dividend, the industry was directed to, uh, to uh, consolidate. And exactly what we did. So now we refer to the big five, Lockheed Martin, Northrop, Raytheon, Boeing, General Dynamics. Um, there are a lot of implications to this consolidation. Uh, first of all, what used to be uh, teammates, for example, TI up, in, uh, here, up here in uh, Louisville and in McKinney, was a great uh, co-partner with uh, Martin Marietta, my original company. Uh, nowadays we're deadly enemies because they're Raytheon. And uh, so we can't talk to them and all that. Competing on one side, uh, uh, co-priming and, and uh, partnering on the other. The other thing is, is, that, is that you can't afford to miss the big one uh, if you're one of these big companies. Uh, there are a couple examples out there. The one that's probably in the newspapers most now is Boeing's loss of the, uh, of the tanker job to uh, a, a consortium headed by Northrop Grumman. Well, Boeing, uh, you know, they can't, their defense industry business can't afford to not have that, that program. It'll make their rate structure go up and that sort of stuff. And I won't even get into the Buy American and all that sort of stuff that, that is associated with that. But it just goes to show you, that's why you see so many companies, even my own, that are protesting decisions of the Department of Defense now that we never would have protested before. It's just that you can't afford to miss a $20 billion program. It's a big part of the business. And uh, so that's, that's why you see a lot of this. Uh, and there was a lot more collegiality in those days between the companies uh, uh, and nowadays, it's just kind of a, more of a sort of a dog-eat-dog -dog world. The other thing that's happened is Wall Street has discovered the defense industry. Those of you who are investors, uh, you would say that Lockheed Martin stock in 1999-98 was 16 and a half. Today, it's 106. So, uh, you know, uh, Wall Street has, has discovered us, and what has happened to that is now they pay attention to our earnings statements. In the past, who cared? You know, it's a defense, boring, you know, they're going to make 3 or 4% growth, and who cares about it? Nowadays, 
We have a huge investor relations department that, that spends a lot of their time talking to Wall Street, to the sell-side analysts, and make sure that our story is well told and that, that sort of stuff. So it's just interesting offshoots of that uh, consolidation. Uh, the workforce has shrunk nearly in half since the Cold War. Uh, I, uh, we don't have a very big workforce. I, I'm sorry, but legal professionals outnumber us two to one. <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's, it's just an indication that there's a very highly skilled and a well-paid workforce. The average salary in the U.S. is something like 27000 The average uh, aerospace and defense worker makes uh, like seventy-one or something like that. So it's, it's a very highly paid, but as you can imagine, a highly skilled industry. Um, our output has increased. Uh, you're getting your value for, for money as taxpayers. Uh, uh, the big problem that we have now is our average age of our engineering force is about 53. It has good and bad pieces to it. One is you don't ever have to tell a 50-year-old engineer how to do something because he's already done it two or three times. And it's so the process is a lot quicker. Uh, on the, and you don't have to invent things with, with youngsters who, you know, and that sort of stuff. The problem is they're all leaving. They're all going to be retirement eligible here in a, in a couple of years, and uh, so we're going to have to re-get re, uh, re that workforce. Let me tell you that I, I, uh, I was involved in uh, the University of Central Florida. We have a very close, as we do with UT Arlington, very close relationship there. And my boss said, let's just go hire the whole graduating engineering class from the University of Central Florida, all of them. Don't even talk. Bring them on. Start them. We, only found, we found only a third of them were eligible to work for us. They have to be U.S. citizens. They have to uh, not have to be a felony, have a previous felony, can't use drugs and all that. Only a third were even eligible to work for us. So it's like, it, it's like that all over the U.S. So we're, we're chasing a very small and declining workforce. And we have to compete with the big money guys at Verizon and all the dot-com folk. So uh, it's, it's a big problem for us, and it's going to get bigger uh, as, as we go forward. Got to be careful with this. Yeah, darn it. Note to self, bring own clicker. OK, it's a niche industry. Everybody wants to talk about the, uh, Eisenhower's uh, uh, military industrial complex. Well, this is what it's come to, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the aerospace and defense big five are about half the sales of Walmart. Uh, I, I found that absolutely uh, amazing. And if you look at the mar market capitalization of Microsoft, for example, it's, it's more than all, all five of the big uh, defense and aerospace companies uh, together. Uh, and you look at their market cap as a percentage of the standard and poor's were 0.7%. So it's not very, not, not a whole lot of weight for something that should be, in my mind, a national asset. And uh, uh, few people really understand the, the, the teeniness of, of, this, of this industry. And uh, Dave's a finance guy, so this is, this is your, your chart, Dave. If you threw those kind of margins in a commercial company, seven, six, like that, you would be looking for work. Uh, we're, we're up a little bit in the last, in the last go round. Lockheed's running about 9.8. We just can't seem to get to double digit uh, returns on, on sales. Uh, but a lot of this has to do with uh, our, uh, the kinds of contracts we get. A lot of government, what you, what you would call time and materials or uh, level of effort contracts are limited to 8%. And so if you take a big program like Joint Strike Fighter, which is sort of a 20 billion-ish kind of program, and you're automatically the max you can make is 8%, your margins aren't going to be huge. And then you've got to invest and things like that. Uh, we spend about 5% of our annual revenues on research and development. Uh, so um, it's, it's not, a, not a huge money-making business, but it's a very predictable business. Um, again, a niche. I want to talk about trade for a minute because this is part of what the council is interested in. Uh, that's the gross domestic product. There's your total uh, aerospace and defense of the big five, uh, uh, about 92.5 billion. And only 25 billion of that is in total defense exports. And I spiked out the foreign military sales, which is a government program where we basically sell to the U.S. government and they in turn sell to the, 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 uh, the partner nation. Um, so kind of a small little 
I mean, the, if that, that circle would really be about the size of that uh, laser spot. Uh, so we've been diversifying, and a lot of it's been going international, but uh, international has also been fairly flat. The international arms sales uh, are out there. So what's happening is, is you find the five U.S. companies competing not only with, with ourselves, but we're competing very much with foreign companies like the BAEs and the Israeli companies. And, the, and a lot of the developing countries, for example, India and uh, even Taiwan, country, countries like that, where previously were not in this market, are big time out there now. And, of course, you always have the Russians and the Chinese. Uh, they meet them everywhere with uh, their vodka and their booth babes. Um. Hey. Hey. You asked me what happened. I never get tongue-tied. I just never know what's going to come out. Okay. So in order to, to uh, insulate ourselves from this flat defense market, uh, the, all the big five are diversifying. And, uh, and you can see, I think someone, someone asked me before we started here, uh, uh, we're about half now in the in systems and information technology business, s still a lot in the aeronautics and space. And, and boy, look at Raytheon, uh, uh, look at GD. Uh, Boeing, that's w without the uh, airplane company. Uh, we're, we're really diversifying into, into uh, we're using our engineers and our software expertise uh, to go into other areas. Um, and I'll show you what a couple of those are. If I can get this clicker to be responsive. In the case of Lockheed Martin, for example, we, uh, we uh, sort your mail. We send you your Social Security checks. We collect your IRS money checks. We uh, do the census in the UK and in Canada. Uh, we do FBI infometrics, uh, fingerprinting. Uh, we keep the National Archives. And none of that has anything to do with uh, you know, the defense business. Boeing, same way. Uh, Northrop, uh, Raytheon, that's depicting Raytheon with a big pipeline surveillance program that they have. General Dynamics is also huge in the, uh, in the outlying areas. So we like to say that we, uh, in just in Lockheed Martin, we have 120,000 engineers. That's more than Microsoft software engineers. So some of the realities we've got to deal with. We've got to adapt to all this environmental changes. Uh, I believe that we are a national uh, asset. We've got to remain competitive and, and technologically in the front, and we've got to uh, control our costs. Um, I believe that it's a net positive to the U.S. economy. We are the largest single export uh, industry in the country. Uh, uh, we, we sustain this industrial and technology edge. A lot of stuff that we do is realized daily by, by Americans uh, and our allies. And, of course, in the uh, political and in industrial partnerships that we, we, uh, we enjoy, a lot of them are enhanced by the kinds of products that, and the sales that we do. We used to have this very collegial relationship with our customer. Um, it's still a, a good, solid relationship, and it has to be a, a sort of a give and take. We call it a partnership. It's not really a partnership. They're always in charge. Uh, but we, like, we would like to see them kind of more understand uh, what we're doing, uh, talking to someone before we started. Engineers, uh, uh, they don't like necessarily to work for, well, they don't like to work for government uh, because they can be paid a lot more not working for government, working for civilian entities. So there are far fewer engineers now working for government, and they are the guys that are supervising us, okay? And I laugh and say, if you think it's bad in engineering, it's even worse in the business, commercial piece of the government. Uh, they can make a ton more money working for industry than working for defense. So the problem is, is that there's a, a real lack of understanding about what motivates industry, any kind of industry, but particularly the industry that they're tasked with uh, supervising. Uh, so we constantly get into communications issues with our customers. And it's all, uh, you can all bring it back to the marketing guy for not doing a good job of telling our story, but a lot of times they, they just don't want to hear it, you know. And we're, uh, we're victims of a lot of that. The other thing is stable program requirements. Presidential helicopter, the poster child for not knowing what you want and then buying it anyway. 
and then deciding afterwards, oh, well, it's got a way, it's got to have this secure system, that's got to have a porta potty, and you know, well, guess what? It gained 2,000 pounds in about the first six months of the contract. Well, the motor that used to work great, the three motors that used to work great, don't work great anymore. The rotor system's inadequate, so you need a new rotor, new development on the rotor, and none McCurdy breach. You know, you guys are over 25% of your baseline cost. Lockheed, you morons. We, we just did what our customer said, you know. And, uh, and at every step, we, we told them, hey, it's going to cost money. Hey, it's going to cost money. Navy customer said, well, White House wants it. Do it. We're like, whatever. Anyway, so that's the poster child for not knowing what you want to buy and then buying what you said you wanted. Uh, the other thing is, uh, uh, is funding. There's big discussion going on this year, as there is every year, about earmarks. Well, it's a zero-sum game. If you take uh, $200 million and put it, give it to some program X over here in, let's say, 12th Congressional District of Pennsylvania, just random, <laughs> well, where do you think that came from? It didn't, no top-line growth. It came from another program. Well, that other program now has to re-wicker itself and try to figure out how it's going to make up for the loss of funds that it had, you know. So we're constantly juggling this, these uh, this capricious funding problems that we get from the Congress and from our own executive branch. Uh, so a good way to stop that would be to do multi-year procurements. Of course, the Congress hates multi-year procurements because it doesn't allow them to do their pork barrel thing, you know. I mean, it, it, so, you know, it goes on. Uh, I will say this, I want to talk about export controls. I'm going to talk to them a little bit later, but just notice the word rational. Uh, I could go out today, today and buy a, a third generation focal plane from the Israelis. Um, anybody could. I can't sell them to Israel. Rational, where's the rationality there? You know, uh, because they, they can't, we can't export them, you know. Anyway. Uh, and then, of course, we've got we've to do things like this. We've got to get out more and tell our story. Uh, uh, actually, Lockheed Martin is, uh, for engineering graduates, is the, uh, usually the first or second largest of every engineering class. They want to work space or, or those kinds of things. So we do a pretty good, we, we do a pretty good job of, of recruiting. So we need full partnerships between the aerospace and companies, between the department, with the Department of Defense, with the Congress, and, of course, NASA and academia and the international governments. And that would yield a healthy kind of, uh, kind of industry that I think uh, the taxpayers deserve. Um, let's talk about international real quick because it is part of what I, what I came to talk about. Today, uh, we're doing business in uh, my company is doing business in over 50 countries, 40 different product lines. Uh, these are the, the top 10 of those countries. Usually the UK is uh, number two behind the US government. We actually uh, have bought, uh, bought a property there, uh, which is very uncommon for, for, for Lockheed to buy, uh, to buy an overseas uh, company. And you will see us expanding a little bit more in the UK because of the treaty between the US and UK that will hopefully reduce the, the burden of tech transfer between us and our closest allies. Uh, but the usual countries, as you might imagine, uh, are in there. Uh, there's one country right there. Uh, I'm sorry, up one. That is really buying a lot of stuff now, and that's the United Arab Emirates. Uh, and there's a result uh, of a couple of things. Um, uh, mostly uh, uh, a, uh, a uh, renewed uh, missile threat perceived from Iran, and the same thing in the north, uh, northern uh, Pacific. The major players in this, as I said, it's a highly, highly regulated industry. Uh, the major player is, of course, the State Department, and because uh, they look at arms sales as, a, as, a, as an arm of American foreign policy. And indeed, that's how we, a lot of how we cement our relationships overseas. So state has final say on who gets what, and, uh, and uh, that is usually called a, a, a license. And uh, they determine who gets what. They approve all the sales and transfers, uh, and they give us these, these licenses. And they also uh, help set foreign assistance funding levels. Um, what are the two biggest countries uh, for getting foreign, assi foreign military assistance from the US? Israel, Israel and Egypt, right? As a result of the 1979 peace accords. 
and they've kept a parity with the two with the two countries. Far down the list, unfortunately, for in my view, are countries like Jordan that has received a ton of bad stuff as a result of our incursion uh, over there, and uh, and is a pretty progressive kind of country that is wants to be friendly and help us in the global war of terror. Uh, there are, so there are a number of countries that should get a lot more, and, and in my mind, and don't. Uh, the rules on this foreign military assistance, of course, are that they have to buy American products with that, with that money. Uh, so it, it does sort of come back to the U.S. Uh, DOD, uh, of course, uh, they're the policy and implementation guys. Uh, so I work very closely with the, the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. Uh, uh, they are our final... Uh, arbiters, if you will, of policy and stuff and implementation. Uh, they, um, when I say they have input on policy, they're the technical guys that determine what technologies can be transferred, and they're in a very uh, pretty well-defined area. But when you get into new systems like terminal high-altitude air defense and PAC-3, uh, Patriot Advanced Capability Missile, the current, uh, the current missile, it kind of sends them into conundrum because they don't have a book that says uh, this country can get that. Well, it's not in the book. So they make new policy, and then uh, we have to go up all the way up to the highest levels of government and sort of get, get, a, uh, get a, uh, an approval to sell these kinds of systems. And, of course, it's very, scrutin uh, very highly scrutinized. Uh, uh, the uh, Defense Department implements the FMS program and FMF, which is the Foreign Military Funded Programs, and, of course, military education. Missing from this chart is the Congress of the United States. Any uh, item of significant military equipment, uh, SME, uh, over $14 million, or if they just think so, has to be notified to the Congress. Uh, and you can go into a formal notification process, which takes 30 days from the day they say it starts. And... <laughs> you know, you deliver it to the clerk of the Congress, he says, thank you, and you say, yep. Do you have it? Nope. I'll tell you when I got it. And you're like, well, it sat over there for three months and they never had it. And they're like, we'll tell you. So they're, we're going through that with a system right now. But they'll tell you, okay, notification starts today, so we got 30 days. Uh, anyway, and of course, you're always subject to committee hearings and, uh, and uh, that sort of thing, which is part of the process. So, I mean, it's, it's part of our country and that's, that's a good thing uh, that, it's, that it is uh, highly scrutinized, of course. Uh, so the Congress... Um, is, a, is a big approver of this. And I, I'm going to go by this, and I just want to show you. Here's, here is the convoluted, this is what I call the welcome to my world chart. Uh, so there are 535 uh, secretaries of state over there, uh, a whole bunch of people that want to do policy over here that these guys ought to be doing. And, of course, the military departments, the guys that we deal with on, on a daily basis, they're the guys that, uh, that uh, really kind of decide and determine what, what can be sold and what, what can't. Uh, of course, the State Department, as uh, Ambassador Oberwetter knows very well, has a huge role in what gets sold and that sort of stuff. But anyway, this is, this is sort of the convoluted web that, uh, that we use to, to sell anything uh, internationally. Uh, anyway, I just want you to know that I'm not out driving around at a Jeep in midnight selling a bunch of guns off a trailer on the back. <laughs> anyway, uh, what's driving it? Tactical ballistical, ballistic missile threat in the Middle East and the far, far East, particularly the growth of weapons of mass destruction payloads, is driving a lot of the, of the international business these days. Uh, growing use and proliferation of these are rockets, artillery, and mortars were full of acronyms, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, of course, uh, the Lebanon incursion uh, was all about that uh, last, last year, or I guess the year before. But uh, a very, uh, very tough problem there, but uh, it's making people look at a lot. We're shifting to uh, knowledge-based warfare in response to new asymmetric threat. An asymmetric threat, read that as a, uh, a guy with a suitcase nuke kind of person. Uh, that's a, an asymmetric threat. And the only way to combat that is by knowing where it's coming from, knowing the threat, knowing where, it, where to stop it, and that, that sort of stuff. So very, uh, very sh big shift there. The problem is, is that there's no hardware sales in that, so your defense industry guys are not necessarily totally happy with that. That's why you see us uh, proliferating out into other areas. Uh, we need to get involved a lot earlier. 
Uh, tactical data fusion, that stands for command control communications, basically telling the commanders in the field what they need to know what right now, not everything, but what they need to know, and trying to figure out what they need to know and when they need to know it is a very crucial piece of, of our, our business. And of course, our customers, as I alluded to earlier, are also shifting to sort of sovereign development. The Indians, the Israelis have always been in the defense industry, but there are a ton of developing countries out there who are trying to develop their own sovereign capability, including countries that never did before, Saudi Arabia, uh, the UAE, uh, those kinds of guys. They were never interested in, uh, in building stuff. They wanted, they, they wanted to buy stuff and own stuff, but they never wanted to build it before. Now, you know, I'm in a, a negotiations now to do a missile support activity in the UAE. I'm in negotiations with the Saudis to do some things. They, never, they were never interested in, in, in uh, their own industry like that. And of course, uh, just because of the world situation, unfortunately, there is a healthy demand for our, for our products. Well, just like a good defense contractor, under on, on a little bit time back, I gave you a 20-minute setback for questions. Uh, was just so complete, you're baffled. John. Oh, okay. Whoa, whoa. Joe first, uh, uh, and then direct Chris. A question about the United Kingdom. Um, you know, I was reading uh, a few weeks ago about uh, ITAR. Uh-huh. Uh, ITAR is the International Tariff on Arms Regulation. It's a set of body of statutes that deals with what we can sell, what technologies we can tra- right. sell. The, uh, ITAR regulations... Uh, you know, most of the UK contracts that I've seen as of late, uh, the MOD is promoting ITAR-free contracts with the US. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that kind of takes us out of the game completely. Well, uh, my approach to that is a good question. Uh, what, well, the question, the question is, is that... Uh, if it, uh, many governments, particularly the, the United Kingdom, are interested in, inter, in, in uh, internal sovereignty over their own systems, uh, the U.S. is pretty tight control, uh, particularly of software code uh, that we export. As a matter of fact, you cannot export any source code. Uh, we have ways to do it legally uh, through software, joint software labs and that kind of stuff, but the code itself has to be supervised by uh, U.S. citizens. Uh, but the point is, is that why, uh, how are we going to do with countries like the UK that want their own ITAR-free systems or no, not subject to any third-party release? Well, the way I did it, the way I've, I've done it is get a UK team uh, totally. Keep the US guys out of it. The US guys only deal with processes. The US guys only deal with um, engineering kinds of things, uh, integration th- kinds of things, program management. But no technologies uh, are ever, ever come into those systems unless they are, you know, approved by the UK government to, as as exportable to third parties. So it's a good question. It's uh, it's it's pretty tough still because they they don't like the extra burden. You know, Chris, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding why countries would want to start their own internal uh, A and D programs because it seems to me the costs. The startup costs and everything mm-hmm. in the uh, time period are so lengthy that it would seem to be just cheaper and easier and less risk just to buy off the market and let somebody else build it and take a risk in developing it. And I don't know how, you know, it's not like you're just building a, you know, a, mm-hmm. a, a small weapon. You're talking about pretty sophisticated programs and that require a lot of brain power and a lot of uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, capital investment. Yeah, yeah. So why are they let me, let me, let me, let me put, put it, I'll show you kind of two ends of the spectrum. Japan. Uh, Japan uh, <laughs> was my first program, international program. Uh, they wanted to buy the Apache. The Apache's an attack helicopter, about $25 million each to the U.S. with ashtrays, air conditioning, floor mats, everything. Uh, <laughs> by the time the... Japanese uh, went through their acquisition process and they wanted to build them themselves, right? Uh, one per year. <laughs> one per year. Sometimes they would peak up and get two. Uh, uh, those aircraft cost $105 million each by our estimation. Uh, money isn't the deal. Money isn't the deal. It's about national sovereignty, and, and they understand the need for, for having the capacity, the capability of having a, a robust defense industry. 
I'm not touching it. <laughs> anyway, uh, so they did. The, the United Arab Emirates, let me, let me just go one step further and I won't bore anybody any, anymore. The United Arab Emirates are spending $20 billion to build a monorail between Abu Dhabi and Dubai. $20 billion. So our whole company doesn't make that much money. So to them, it's not, it's not an issue. It's more about technology and becoming, and becoming a, a, to, to realize all three elements of national power, one being defense. You know. Um, anyway, Dick. Uh, John, I'll admit I'm a bit overwhelmed now with everything you've provided us. You're too nice. I'd like to know, is what are the two or three most important things that we as citizens should understand about the defense industry? Uh, the two or three most important things. That's a great question. One is I would strive to, uh, as I said, maintain the, uh, stable funding. It, that, I'm not even saying high funding. I'm just saying stable because we can, we can uh, react to whatever funding level we get. But what we can't stand, just like any business, you can't stand, especially if we've got one customer, uh, you know, so uh, I would say stable funding, and of course I'm a, as a, you know I believe in that part of the preamble to the Constitution that says provide for the common defense. I think we ought to have a strong defense industry, and you know not everybody agrees with that. I understand, but that's why we are a democracy. So that would be that would be kind of the, the second thing: stability. Uh, and you and you know and, and congressmen listen to you to you when you write them. They don't listen to me because I'm on their file, so I can't write them anymore. <laughs> they don't listen. To me. Yes, sir. Well, uh, yes. Uh, the question is, can I, uh, from my defense uh, point of view, can I talk about uh, the, the threat that China poses uh, over the next 10 years or so? Uh, first thing is the Chinese defense budget isn't published in the um, national record like ours is. Uh, and so when they say they're spending 35 or $40 billion a year on defense, most people would say it's probably at least twice and maybe three times that. Uh, uh, I see them everywhere now. Then in the past, they would bring little wooden models to shows. Now they're bringing computer simulations. They're getting very much more sophisticated in their marketing. And they have some good technology, some excellent technology. So from the purely defense industry point, I see them as a, a viable competitor, particularly in areas where they are hegemonic, South Asia, uh, that, that, that sort of, of place. Uh, it's Central Asia, they're growing. Good relationship with India, Pakistan. Um, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, I just think that the Chinese in general are going to be a major peer competitor for the U.S. forever. I mean, as long as things stay with there. I mean, a billion three kind of population, you know, and they, uh, they consider that whole part of the world their domain and that we're nothing but uh, interlopers, if you will. So I, I think they're going to be, uh, be around a long time. No, but mass has a quality all its own. There's a lot of it. And uh, if you just take the North Koreans, for example, the North Koreans have some 5,000 main battle tanks uh, arrayed in the first 100 kilometers behind the DMZ. 5,000. I mean, the U.S. doesn't even own 5,000 main battle tanks. <laughs> well, they can't drive them because they don't have any gas nowadays, but still. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but in, uh, in any case, uh, it, the, the, the quality is, is probably generation behind ours. Uh, if you take uh, areas where we're strong, software integration, stealth technology, uh, electro-optics, uh, lasers, those kinds of things, we're light years ahead of just about uh, all those guys. We do use a lot of technologies from, as you might uh, guess, from France and other advanced countries, uh, the UK, we buy a lot of laser materials and electro-optical stuff from them. But or they're sort of a generation. It's all about the integration job, really. When I mean the higher level assembly, how it fights. Most jets can go Mach 2. You know, most don't have a very, very highly capable sensitive radar like the ones that we have that can take that data and give it to the pilot in a meaningful way that he can make quick decisions. Uh, that's where, where our edge is.
Uh, fine. So the question is, why does it take decades to, to develop uh, complex uh, systems like the Joint Strike Fighter when Boeing built a triple seven in probably six years from from inception? Well, uh, the first thing is is that the government uh, they their their requirements process is is different from a market driven process. In a market driven process, you sit around, you know what you want. You need a, a, a wide-body airplane that has this much fuel duration, that, and you, you, a couple engineers, can get it, and you can get it through the company and prove it. They didn't like that in the government. The government, first of all, they're not real sure. They've got the capability gap, uh, and they're not real sure how to, how to fill that capability gap. It's got tons of different requirements, and so they, they have a lot of trouble narrowing down the requirements and making it into a piece of hardware that'll fit that, those, that set of requirements. The requirements process is horribly lengthy, five years. Uh, then, you go into, then you go into the acquisition process itself. The government, by its very nature, is extremely risk-averse. Okay? So they want backups for everything. And, and, they, and, they, and they, you know, so right now, uh, Mr. John Young, the, the OSD uh, ATNL uh, undersecretary, has decided to make things even better for us, that they're going to take two prototype systems through development concurrently with the same budget. Well, I'm not your finance guy. I, ain't going to work. Okay, It's going to cost you a lot more or it's going to take a lot longer. So he's doing that to re reduce risk. And okay, that's a laudable goal. But the way they could reduce risk is stabilize their own requirements and keep the funding stable. Then you'd have a, a lot less risk. But Partisan industry view. I'm sorry. Check. What? Mm -hmm. uh, okay, Jackie asks, well, or is that what's coming? She states that the uh, infrastructure chart that showed the aging fleet of platforms seems to be a terrible mistake on the part of our government. I think it's pushing a bow wave of, of defense procurement. So I guess I'm not an insider, but you ought to think about the five defense companies as possibly good investments because all this stuff is getting old. And if you want to continue to have even a modicum of, defense, of, of strong defense, you're going to have to replace all that stuff. The war in Iraq has been expensive. Had it not been for the war in Iraq eating up money, would those funds uh, have gone to uh, re re renew this infrastructure? Kind of a hard to speculate on where the industry might have gone. My guess is some probably. The other aspect is, is that we're using this equipment daily at a much more accelerated rate than what they were built for. They were, these systems were built for 25, 30 years. But you're getting 25 years in three on, on, a, on an Apache. These Apaches are coming back. They're toast. They sent them back for rebuild. They're, all, they're stripping them down to nothing and rebuild them. That's because they're flying the pants off of them. Same with all the jet fleet, all that sort of stuff. So that's the other, other part of it. You're using it up faster uh, because you're going through its shelf life. And then, yeah, I suppose some of it would have come back. Uh, but I, uh, that's a political decision. And the, the, this is a, a tool of the U.S. government. Uh, and they decided they wanted to use that tool that way. So we're just doing what we can. Susan? Yes. Is there anybody that um, these major markets see who, you know, like I'm the president 
Uh, I got to stay away from sort of political discussions, even though I'm wearing my Republican tie. I just did it to solve all these problems here that might come up. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, at first blush, you would say, well, John McCain would be great for defense, wouldn't he? No, John McCain really attacked Boeing big time over the tanker, the first tanker deal. Now, he would be a very capable and smart steward of, of government money going to defense. And he's, and he's probably in the Senate our worst cr critic, uh, which I think is good because he's smart. He knows what's going on, all right? Uh, Hillary, huge supporter of presidential helicopter, huge supporter of, of Lockheed Martin in Owego, New York. Anyway, so, I mean, we like Hillary. Obama's not kind of, we don't really know. I mean, but let me just say that the company, political action, uh, fund gives equally to all the parties. <laughs> it's so true. Who knew? Ambassador, okay. This is going to be an easy one. Oh. This has to do with the workforce, the competition for engineers. Um, I mean, you're in competition with the high tech, with the energy people, with everybody. What are you all doing uh, to advance uh, engineers coming? It's a great question. What are we doing to attract engineers? As I, as I alluded to earlier, we, uh, we usually, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, are usually the number one, number two selections for engineering graduates. The problem is keeping them uh, because uh, a lot of the things that they, that they initially do, I mean, they may be working on ARIES, the Mars program, for example, but they're doing sort of engineering things, you know, structures and structural analysis and things like that. And after about three or four years, you know, you really, your program isn't going to fly for five more years. So we got to keep them excited uh, with what they're doing, and uh, a, a lot of them stay just because they're patriots. I mean, a lot. I mean, you you go go around. There's a whole lot of red, white, and blue in that plant in Dallas and Fort Worth. Uh, these people are, are are largely patriots. But we try to uh, we we have a program called Employer of Choice uh, Initiatives uh, that. Lockheed Martin was number four in the Metroplex, I think, for best company to work for. High, high wages, uh, uh, time off, could, you know, every other Friday is an off Friday. Uh, we, uh, we, of course, don't have our wonderful defined benefit pension program anymore, but that was getting unaffordable and was hitting the bottom line. But we do have a very lucrative retirement uh, program. So we kind of do the normal, what you'd call things of you know, a good uh, compensation package and uh, try to give them exciting work. Move them around. We, we're big in training and leadership. Uh, we have a, a program at Lockheed Martin called Full Spectrum Leadership, uh, which at every level of the organization tries to get people into the leadership, gives them opportunities to run teams. To If they want to, some are happy being individual contributors, but if you want to run a team, you know, we try to keep them challenged. And that's a huge issue because at the three-year mark, they start looking, and and uh, but if they make it to seven, they're usually with us for life. So that's where we try to keep them keep them keep them challenged. Sir, uh, approximately well, what percentage of the defense budget is spent on personnel, and doesn't the war in Iraq demonstrate we need more people? Yes, very 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 good question. Probably a third to a half of the defense budget is uh, is people. It's, and, and the thing about it is it's immediate outlays, too. So in a piece of equipment, you can, com you can obligate money. I'm sorry, you can commit money to buy a piece of equipment. For a person, you've got to pay them every hour of every day. And so you can, you can, you can move uh, $150 million a week just by, change, by adding or detracting five, day, five a month in grade for E5 promotions. It's amazing how, how it is. That was my previous life. But... It's, it's a huge percentage. And the other thing is the talent drain. Uh, it's hard to get these people. Now, we've made a lot of hay lately about, you know, the standards for enlistments and going down and all that. Uh, well, you know, they have, but they're still better than uh, most of the other uh, workforces around here. And you don't hear about drug abuse in the Army and the Marines and Navy and that sort of stuff that we used to have in the bad old days. Uh, so we're getting a very high-quality workforce. Uh, so... Uh, in the army in, in general. So, anyway, yes, ma'am. Yes, 
John, you, you mentioned up there that being engaged earlier is kind of a, one of those dynamics of the international yeah. market. Um, would you say that it's more because of the competitive landscape, procurement, or is it something other that's a challenge for you guys in your lives? She's alluding to... A Alluding to a, a bullet up there that talked about getting engaged earlier, it's 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 both. Uh, you take Joint Strike Fighter, for example, which is a twenty billion dollar program just for the initial fifteen prototypes. I think nine partner nations, and they send money uh, to be part of this, uh, so it it reduces the cost to the U.S. taxpayer. So the overall program cost might be thirty billion. U.S. taxpayers pay twenty. Uh, uh, so part of it is getting uh, getting other partners to get on board, help us in these expensive developments. And the woods are full of stories: uh, medium extended air defense system, uh, guided multiple launch rocket system, all all uh, international consortiums. The other thing is about competition. Uh, it's really nice to go into a country and you're in with the home team. You know, uh, it makes it a lot easier to go to meetings if you have the same accent. You know, as the other guys. So, yeah, it's, it's both. But it, 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 these countries that want sovereign capability, you're not going to sell anything if they don't have their own industry involved. Chris, John, did, uh, going back to the Chinese, is there a concern in the uh, in, in in your industry that that the Chinese being flush with cash from all their uh, exports uh, that they've done otherwise? will be able to subsidize their military equipment sales overseas to effectively undercut anything that we're going to try to sell to other countries? Uh, I, I just haven't seen, I haven't seen that kind of, kind of thing go on. Uh, to them, it's more about geopolitical, I think, relationships, wouldn't you say? I mean, if you take, for example, China and Pakistan, it's, it's just much more about that kind of thing. You know, let's be friendly with this big monster next door to us, that, that, kind, that kind of stuff. And they're not really selling a lot of stuff outside their own, their own regime yet, although they're, they're trying to make, uh, make those. Well, they're going to the Middle East a lot, uh, uh, but I don't, I've just not met them in our, in our part of the industry. They don't, aren't, aren't that competitive yet. They're a sovereign government, Jim. I can't. The question was, do I permit them to buy from China? Uh, they make they make their own they make their own decisions, and uh, I mean we're pretty strict about what we uh, exp allow them to export of our stuff, but it's like none. So uh, and then and it's hard for them to buy spares, for example, from other providers because the specs are not transferable either. Yeah, I mean, and that's the kind of that's why countries make these kind of decisions. Why Pakistan, and why we try to stay close to Pakistan. Just, I mean, it's better to be engaged than to chase them away, in my opinion. Susan, appreciate. Just out of our division alone, about a million dollars a year to this community and community affairs. We support the arts. Support. We're particularly big in education, healthcare. We're particularly big in education, obviously, because that's where our engineers are coming from. Yeah. Thanks, Susan. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> I think I think we're out, out of time. And uh... you have a question back here? Oh, oh yeah. I, no, the, he asked it basically. I was from the ambassador asked that Oh, thanks. Anyway, I just can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this. I hope I wasn't too pedantic or whatever. Anyway, but uh, thanks very much for coming.
For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.